Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. We are beginning chapter 26 in this episode, and now we are clearly in a new section in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is centered around five major discourses or messages by Jesus. And we have just finished the last one in chapter 25, in which Jesus gives a brief overview of future events, but mostly focuses on the importance of faithful endurance after his departure. We then have this repeated phrase in Matthew, which often indicates a, a major transition as something to the effect of, when Jesus had finished these sayings. And so we are now in the final section of the book, dealing with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In uh, the unit in front of us, we have a skillfully worded uh, section, which is uh, composed to lead us to rightly think about the upcoming events. Now, as I read the text, notice the structure. We are kind of ping-ponging back and forth. First, we hear Jesus talk to his disciples and find out that Jesus knows he's going to die. Then we eavesdrop on the religious leaders, who are strangely missing the Pharisees, and, and find out uh, that they are plotting his death. The camera then cuts back to Jesus, where there is an incredible act of worship and anointing concerning his impending death. We then go back to the religious leaders and find that they continue to scheme, but this time they change their plans because of Judas's willingness to betray Jesus. Now, the result of this structure is that Matthew is emphasizing that Jesus is in control. He knows what's happening. The religious leaders are described as scrambling, ignorant. Uh, despite their plots against Jesus, they're only doing what he himself has predicted. Uh, the comments here by Davies and Allison in their excellent commentary are worth quoting. They say, quote, He is completely aware of what lies ahead and determined to face it, that his prophecy precedes the account of his opponent's plot in verses 3 to 5, underlines his foreknowledge. He is more in charge than they are, end quote. So keep in mind the bouncing back and forth and how the characters are juxtaposed in this section. We're in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
As mentioned before, this is kind of a sandwich structure in which the plots of the religious leaders frame the event, with the central element being Jesus' anointing. Now, there are four accounts of a woman anointing Jesus in, in the Gospels, well, one per Gospel. One seems to be a different event, and that's the one in Luke 7, which describes a sinful woman anointing Jesus' feet with an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and kisses his feet in the house of Simon the Pharisee. But the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke all probably are talking about the same event. Uh, From those other accounts, we get the additional information that the dinner was in the house of Simon the leper, Uh, whom some have suggested may be the father of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, but this is far from certain. Uh, They also inform us that the oil was put on his head as well as his feet. Uh, We get a a nod in that direction at least, and that uh, we just read earlier that she pointed the ointment on his body. Uh, They also inform us that the oil was very costly. Matthew and Mark also include Jesus' words, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial for her. Uh, Strangely enough, Matthew and Mark, after saying that incredible statement about how important she is, don't contain her name. John, however, will inform us that her name is Mary. Uh, Clearly, this woman gets it right. She understands, in contrast to the disciples, and in in John's version, especially Judas, uh, what's going on. Now, there are a couple impressive aspects of her actions. First, this woman is uh, has such spectacular faith uh, and is so exemplary because of the cost of her anointing. A denarius is about a day's wages, and uh, John will inform us that um, this is about, it was worth about 300 denarii, but Matthew just says that it's very expensive ointment. Now, if we just think about the cost of this from John's perspective a little bit, if you subtract uh, one out of seven days for not working on the Sabbath and throw in some time for feast days, we've got about a year's wages. Now, I think it's helpful to think proportionately how long a person would have to work for something if we were to get the significance of this. Now, I don't know what that means for you. For some of us, that's thirty to $40,000 a year. For some of us, that's sixty to $70,000 a year, or whatever it is. Uh, we are talking about an incredible treasure uh, that uh, Mary is putting on Jesus' body. People have had different ideas as to how she would have gotten this uh, incredible gift. Perhaps it was a fa- family heirloom. Perhaps she was saving it for a dowry. We just don't know. But it was a lavish gift. Now, as we think again about the ping-ponging back and forth and the juxtaposition of characters, uh, one contrast clearly emerges. We have uh, this woman giving almost like an irrationally huge gift for Jesus. Uh, It's just incomprehensible what she's doing, and that contrasts with what Judas is doing. Uh, This woman thinks Jesus is worth any amount, and she's right. Judas is willing to betray Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Now, we're not exactly given the currency, so we don't know exactly how much that money was, and we can't compare it to uh, modern currency. Uh, But there may be an allusion here to Exodus 21.32, which reads like this, If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall pay to the slave owner 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. 
Thus, the idea is that Judas's estimation of the Lord is way too small, uh, the, the price of a slave. Matthew will later explicate the allusion to Zechariah 11, which has a note of irony. It reads like this, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it into the sanctuary, the lordly price at which I was valued by them. So I took 30 shekels of silver and threw them into the treasury in the house of the Lord. So, again, here, this woman is being contrasted with with Judas. Some have taken Jesus' response to indicate that Jesus wasn't really all that concerned about the poor. But the Lord regularly says things like, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, or I have come to preach good news to the poor, or blessed are the poor. In fact, uh, his way of expressing himself here, uh, the poor you will always have with you, is probably an allusion to Deuteronomy 15.11, uh, which reads like this, For the poor will never cease out of your land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to your poor, and to your needy in your land. In fact, recall that chapter 26 comes right after, well, 25. And if you remember when we discussed uh, that text, uh, there are certain ones who will enter into eternal life because of how they treated the needy, and others will go into eternal punishment because they failed to do so. So it's not that we are to avoid our God-given responsibility to, to give to the poor. Instead, it's that we are to recognize the incomparable value of who Jesus is, and that no offering is too great to give in worship to him. And there, of course, is much application for us today. I like the way D.A. Carson puts it in his excellent commentary on John. Quote, If self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. End quote. I I like that because it stresses that the situation is not an either-or, but a both-and, both of giving to the poor, but also realizing the greater value of worshiping Jesus. Uh, Besides the cost of her anointing, this woman is exemplary because of the purpose of her anointing. We've already considered the statement, the poor you will always have with you, but me you will not always have. Now, notice that this is introduced with a conjunction for, explaining what proceeds. Each of the three accounts specify this as the reason for anointing. It is for Jesus' burial. Now, ideally, you only bury one kind of a person, and that's a dead person. While everyone else cannot get it into their thick heads that when he says he is going to die, he really means it, this woman takes Jesus at his word. Whether it is because she realizes uh, the significance of everything that's going on, uh, we're not quite certain. But Jesus does say what she has done, she has done uh, for my burial. Now, it's entirely possible that Jesus is reinterpreting this woman's actions and giving them a greater significance than what she could have ever imagined. However, given this incredible testimony that Jesus gives of this woman, that wherever the gospel is preached, what she's done will be told in memory of her. It seems like she must have some element of great faith, which commends us to understand her actions as knowing that Jesus is about to die. In fact, we can also compare this woman with the other women who will eventually want to come and anoint Jesus's body for burial. 
They want to anoint Jesus' body, but they never get the chance because he's risen from the dead. It's only this woman who actually gets to perform this act because she has the foresight of faith, taking Jesus at his word, uh, to anoint him while there is still time. We also should think about the uh, significance of what she's doing as being described with anointing. Now, anointing is a very important word in the Bible, and here we read that this woman is anointing Jesus' head, and that it calls to mind times like Solomon's anointing or David's anointing. Uh, it is uh, it is setting someone apart for a special task, usually kings. In fact, the word, the Messiah, the Christ, literally means the anointed one. Uh, and yet Jesus is saying that his anointing is for his death, for his burial. So here we have this woman, strangely like a prophet like Samuel and Jesus like the king. The idea here is that Jesus is the true king, but he is the true king who is going to die. And we have com- contrasted for us the person of Judas who is uh, despairing of Jesus in his mission and just wants to get whatever he can out of it. And this woman who realizes who Jesus is and so falls down and, and worships him in a very extravagant way. Uh, it's worth thinking about this question. Would you rather be the apostate apostle or the woman with great faith, willing to give everything she has because she rightly perceives the true significance of Jesus?